As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. So, Mike, I want you to close your eyes. Um, no. <laughs> okay, come on. Just just try it. Seriously? I just want to do a little experiment, you know? All right. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting right next to you, so you're not going to know if I'm really doing it. But, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it. I'm closing my eyes. All right. So, I want to I wanna go back in time about 20 years or so, right before you started eFuneral. Dude, that was not that long ago. That was like, <laughs> not, that wasn't even 10 years ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> A couple years ago. So before like the gray hair. Oh, you had to bring that up. <laughs> before the kids. Okay. Right? All right. The simpler time. And I, I want you to think back to that moment when you decided to really start a company. That moment when you were excited, filled with hope. At that moment, did you think you would fail? This feels like a trick, but no, no, I didn't. And why not? I mean, I guess 
I felt like uh, at that time I was like really passionate about a problem and I felt like I might have had a solution to that problem. And did you? Well, that's a little complicated. I get, <laughs> in the end, at least for e-funeral, let's say, no, I did. I, maybe I didn't have the right one exactly. Okay, okay. So this wasn't to make you feel bad. All right. Well, it didn't work then. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. I'm. I feel just fine. Okay. So it was an example of optimism bias or self confidence bias. We've all had that moment of complete self assurance, right? Where you realize only years later that you know it was probably a bit flawed. I've had it with every company and idea that I've ever dreamed of or even started. I could definitely relate to that. So, what was your biggest like overly confident moment? Probably starting Brandesty, I was so sure we were on to something big. And what happened? For the most part, nothing. It all went wrong, right? No one really wanted to buy it. The people that did just wanted tons of changes and modifications. We we never really hit product market fit. We were bootstrapped, and man, we just we lost a ton of money on that. It reminds me of this old Cat Power song. Yes, I remember when that song came out, I was working at the Strange Music Magazine in LA. I was cold calling music companies to get them buy ad spots in a book that one of the executives was, they were going to write. Anyway, um, <laughs> the in-house production artist burned me a pirated copy of this before it came out, and we're still friends to this day. We're getting off track, but I kind of like where, where you're going with that. I want to hear more <laughs> about that story later on. Okay. Okay. All right. So getting it wrong is very humbling, but let's try one more. Don't you think we need to like do the whole intro thing? Yeah, yeah. We'll get there. Okay. Close your eyes one more time. Okay. All right. Think back to the first time you pitched a VC and they passed on you. How did that make you feel? Oh, yeah. It made me feel like I had it all wrong. But you didn't have it all wrong, right? I mean, they weren't wrong. But they weren't all right. Your company didn't fail, right? You eventually had an exit. It's Yes, that's true. But that first VC, they put a lot of doubt in you, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, for sure. The super smart person I'm pitching in front of, and they had a lot of real questions that was hard for me to answer. So yeah, I mean, it, it took a minute, or actually took days. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, assurance that you gave to them, this power that you gave to them is known as authority bias. Okay, all right. But Michael, I do think we need to do the whole intro thing. <laughs> okay, fine. Let's roll it. <laughs> Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. Okay, so we're, we're talking today about what, biases? Yeah, we're going to talk about overcoming cognitive biases, which when working in product is really half of what it takes to get things moving in the right direction. Okay. You, you remember Ken Sandy's talk from industry on this, right? Yeah. Let's actually dig into that talk a bit. He had this great story about authority bias. He just took over as director of product at a company, and he was charged with solving a specific problem for some of their customers. Uh, it was for an enterprise company that had a product with a fairly high price point, a really complex value prop. 
And so our challenge was to figure out how we might actually uh, increase leads, increase awareness, and, and obviously drive sales. Uh, we were doing a bunch of brainstorming, and a C-suite uh, stakeholder at one point during the meeting said, I have a straw man for you. He then proceeded to outline a really specific solution framework based on his understanding of the market, based on his conversations with customers. Noted, along with all the other ideas, I put that in the hopper and considered it for uh, evaluation. Uh, but in subsequent meetings, he kept on coming back to it over and over again, uh, asking like when it might be done, how we'd evolve the solution, what, what have we started to do in terms of resourcing, and some of the commitments he was already making to the customer. It took me by surprise. Until one of the existing team members pulled me aside and said, when he suggests a straw man, he's not really suggesting. And so I had this realization that I was new to, the, new to this industry. He, he obviously knew a lot more than I did. So I adopted his plan. That didn't quite fit well with me. Uh, had we explored enough ideas? Had I done enough primary research of my own? Had there been sufficient evaluation? Uh, and more so, what kind of culture am I creating for my team if that's how we prioritize work? It didn't work out. The solution did create a whole lot more leads, but they were largely unqualified, and that really frustrated the, the, the sales team. So I thought to myself, how do I learn from this? And ended up building a, uh, a, a survey, and I've been doing a bunch of research with a ton of product managers to try to figure out how endemic are these sorts of issues in the industry. Okay, so we're gonna talk specifically about three common biases that happen in the workplace. All right, I'm up for that, let's do it. So we're gonna get dark here for a moment, but but bear with me. You ever wonder how people do you know those horrible things to each other? Like, how did the Nazis get everyone to carry out such heinous acts on behalf of the government? We are getting really, really dark. Yeah, but it's important. So Ken talked about the Milgram obedience experiment. This is a more famous example of authority bias. This is Milgram's obedience experiment in Yale in 1961. You may, uh, may know about it, but basically a perceived authority figure orders subjects to shock recipients. Uh, the shocks were fake, but the subjects didn't know that. And they almost always blindly obliged. Sometimes I feel like that in product management. Sometimes I'm not quite sure what side of the dial I'm on either. So my definition in the context of product management around authority bias is a manager, key customer, or other person in a position of power or expertise, perceived or real, may assert information to be true or a course of action to be the, the correct path. And the tendency is we skip critical assessment of their directive, perhaps out of deference to their authority, and over-eagerness to please them, or an assumption they have all the, all the facts. So Ken mentioned he did a survey with a bunch of product managers to gather data for this talk. Right, right, he did. So what type of data do you gather around authority bias? First of all, 60% uh, of product managers are reporting experiencing authority bias as defined often or always in their company, in their current company. A third of them believe that their company actually handles it very, very poorly, in that there's no real mechanisms to really undermine or, 
or over, overcome that, that, that authority bias. 95% agree that they have fast-tracked a feature, not because of the value that would create, but because of who was asking for it. Half of them have accommodated those features late in the development and skipped the usual prioritization and evaluation and discovery phases to, uh, to ship them. And they frequently don't actually believe in them. And two out of three product managers agreed that at the end of the day, stakeholders opinions rule the day when deciding product priorities. So I thought that was pretty interesting, pretty shocking. Um, yeah, not surprising, but it sounds like we product people have some work to do. Yeah, indeed. All right, let's break here and we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, we are back and we're still discussing authority bias. And Ken had just dropped a bombshell from his research that basically, look, everyone's roadmap is dictated by their C-suite. So much for that whole CEO of the product line that you hear about, right? Yeah, I know. I, I never really bought that one. But, you know, we can do better. So Ken did have an encouraging story about overcoming that authority bias. I was working for, uh, as interim head of product, for a mobile application, a social networking mobile application. It was actually the largest in its segment. It was a fairly niche uh, product, but it did have millions of daily active users and a very sizable subscriber base of 400,000. Each, on average, uh, spending 90 minutes with the product a day. And of the subscribers, there was, there was about a 5% conversion rate, which is one of the highest I've heard of and each spending about $100 a year on the product. So pretty, pretty significant business. However, they were really struggling in some, some unique ways. First of all, they hadn't launched a new product in two years. The fundamental root cause was everything was being funneled up to the CEO and founder, who incidentally had started the, the, the company because he saw himself with a problem and was very much the target customer. And so as a result, there was a lot of passion and very much uh, he saw himself as the, as the target customer. Uh, we had also tons and tons of feature requests. So as a result, those features were being added to already in, in flight product development. There was a bottleneck with getting decisions made. And as a result, two years was, was not a surprise. So what did we do? Well, what's the opposite of opinion? Data. Now this guy was very, very much an intuitive thinker. And so our solution initially started with balancing his qualitative thinking and intuitive thinking with the qualitative data from the user base. We made it very simple. It was a very small team. One of the biggest concerns with changing things up this drastically was uh, the investment and potentially slowing us down even further. So we made it simple. Uh, simply by five users coming in every week 
with minimal preparation, whatever the issue de jour was, that would be what we would tackle with them. And it would be very directionally useful, but essentially it meant that we were able to now talk on the same level as the stakeholder with actual words that the users were using. And secondly, to, to unblock this, this uh, issue with shipping product and also to become more quantitatively uh, uh, driven, we launched uh, a three-stage beta which allowed us to really reduce the risk down to like 1,000 users per, per beta phase and really set KPI goals before we even started, which elevated the whole conversation from being much about features and risks into here's the goals, here's the outcomes and the, and the tolerances that we expect on the counter metrics. And so long as we're within those, we're able to be successful. What happened? The team immediately felt empowered to challenge opinion because they now had some data. We actually massively de-scoped a lot of features because we were able to show that by focusing and launching the betas, we were actually on track to hit our metrics. And within three months, we had launched the new version with a significant revenue lift. Okay, I can get behind that. I'm, I'm feeling a little better now. Yeah, let's, let's move on to the next one, survivor bias. In World War II, aircraft losses were high. To reduce losses, the Allied forces studied planes that returned from battle to discern new armor placements. They found that bullet holes on the wingtips, in the center of the plane, and on the tail. And so they started to armor the planes on those, on those areas where the bullet holes were more frequent. What they hadn't factored in was the damage on the planes that didn't return, the ones that were at the bottom of the ocean. By neglecting the bullet holes on lost planes, they actually missed armoring planes' most vulnerable areas, which happened to be where the bullet holes are not, the engines. That was where they had to be working. This is an example, famous example of survivor bias. Though the data you have, that's what you will make the decisions on, but the data you don't have, the absence of that data, you don't necessarily um, make great decisions without filling that in. My definition of survivor bias in the product management context, <clears throat> it's basically a common flaw, particularly bedeviling the customer research, user behavior analysis, and user testing. And that's around concentrating in the, on the efforts, your efforts, on those who are most active with your product. These users are generally more positive about your product. They're more visible. They're more easily reached to, typically more responsive. Oh. This one definitely hits home for me. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, at Dribble, we get so much feedback coming in from social. Sometimes there's good insights, but other times we're hearing from a few squeaky wheels, and they don't always properly represent the millions of people who are actually using the site. Yeah, I could totally get that. So Ken had some interesting examples on this. Onboarding and adoption. Those that make it through those phases, you talk to because they're using your product successfully, but those that dropped out in the first five minutes are examples of users that you're probably not talking to, and that's an example of survivor bias. Another example um, is companies that are currently uh, optimizing for paid advertising through social and through search are sending signal back to those companies, and uh, th that signal is being used to, to target an ever more smaller so uh, set of prospects to get efficiency, which means that the company is acquiring the same users over and over again and largely ignoring the needs of uh, a, a much larger market. As a result, their growth stalls. I hadn't taken that second example into consideration before, but it, it makes sense. 
Yeah, I need to keep that in mind as we go to market with the next industry event for sure. So again, Ken has some research around this and he broke it up into consumer versus enterprise apps. On consumer apps, not surprisingly, behavioral analytics of current users dominated constantly. That's probably a good thing. We should be looking at the plethora of data that Google Analytics and other like Amplitude and other uh, 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 tools have brought to us, uh, but it's insufficient. If you only look at that, that's a form of survivor bias. Only one in three agreed that they had ranked disengaged users as a top three source. In other words, out of all of the lists that we gave them, uh, the disengaged users or elapsed users, the ones who aren't using your product but once tried, were not actually being talked to. And almost 60% admitted at the current company they had rarely or never participated in an interview with a dissatisfied customer. Pretty shocking. Enterprise products didn't fare so well either. Direct requests from existing customers, in particular those really highly motivated, dominated across the board. Again, probably not all that surprising. Probably the same, probably the way it should be. So long as those requests aren't super prescriptive, one-off solutions, and the product manager is actually empowered to step back and think about the solution to the root cause problem, it's probably okay. Two-thirds don't actually look at user behavior analysis. So they're not thinking about the onboarding, engage, uh, onboarding, adoption, and engagement phases of their product. And they agreed that they make investments in those areas only occasionally or less than occasionally. And even more shocking, they only, only 12% reported talking to and making a priority disengaged or elapsed customers. So the customers that stopped using your enterprise solution, actually understanding why and solving those problems was not a priority for them. To all of the enterprise product managers, you've got some work to do. <laughs> it's tough though, right? <laughs> Especially in enterprise, your customers aren't always clamoring to get on the phone for a customer interview. We should cut them a little slack. Yeah, fair, fair enough. But the lesson is get out and talk to as many people as you can, especially those that you don't have enough insights for yet. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, we're back with our last bias to discuss. Selection bias, recall bias, cause and effect bias. No, reputation risk. Oh, that's a new one to me. Well, here's Ken with more on it. Google, Google's Project Aristotle is a landmark study of teamwork and team performance. It started in 2012, and they published their findings a couple of years ago. They identified five factors underlying team success. They were the impact of work on the business and customers, the meaning of the work, how important is that to me, the structure and clarity of the work, goals, clear process, and understanding of what the, the outcomes are meant to be, dependability, how much can I rely on my teammates and, and is there mutual accountability, and psychological safety, can I take risks in my team? By far, psychological safety, a, a, fra a phrase that's been coined by Harvard professor Amy Edmondson, won out. It was the most important thing by far. Basically defined as a shared belief that the team is a safe environment for interpersonal risk-taking and confidence that the team will not embarrass, reject, or punish. Now, while 
reputation risk is not the opposite of psychological safety. It's a product when you don't have it. Reputation risk is as you propose and communicate support for an approach, you become personally invested in it. It's very easy to fall in love with your own ideas. That's a halo effect. Or you may see the failing of something that you've supported as a reflection on your personal failings. In a reputational risk environment, you, you, you see a lot of defense, defensibility and inflexibility. Uh, you reject data that's contradicting your beliefs, and you tend to look for data that supports it. Or the team just takes fewer risks in the first place. Oh, this sounds dangerous. I imagine this is the cause of decline or failure of a lot of companies. Well, let's get right to the data. So how prevalent is reputation risk? Well, we asked this question. I would describe my company as one where failure is embraced as learning and taking risks is actively encouraged. I was encouraged to see that 60% of, of respondents actually agreed with that statement or strongly agreed with that statement, which is a great outcome. We have a way to go because almost a quarter do not see this as an their company as an environment where they can take risks. What are some of the behaviors that we saw correlated with, um, with higher psychological safety? A willingness and, and, and welcomeness to challenge when you have doubts, 63%. Prototyping, validating, and iterating around a solution as a process, uh, as opposed to building the solution from the outset, was 49% of them. Willing to roll back a, a product feature or a product when it's not hitting business metrics, not technical failure, but actually when it's not hitting your business metrics, 33%. A regular behavior around holding retrospectives and five ways to get to root causes of issues and going and actually fixing those root causes, 40%. And celebrating even when things don't work out. They were a learn fast organization, not fail fast, don't like that term. They were a learn fast organization because even failure was an opportunity to learn from that and celebrate, literally celebrate, when they had learned something, even if they had to roll something back. Not as bad as I thought it would be, but if you're in one of these companies, how do we go about getting over it? Here's an example. I was a head of product for a company and we had a conversion optimization team for a subscription business. Essentially, we're trying to get uh, A-B testing and experiments to see whether or not we could increase our, our conversion rate from about 1% to see if we can get to 1.4, 1.5. We had a very high visibility uh, conversion rate KPI across the business and a team allocated to that, and we were reporting on that very regularly. Uh, we were historically a very top-down, lower trust environment. Obviously, as a product leader, I was trying to change that culture. But that put the team in an anxious area because now they had ownership for this very big goal, no clear path to get there, and a lot of atten attention in an environment that didn't have psychological safety. What happened? Well, they tried safe ideas, only safe ideas. Every idea has to work is then what they thought that we were asking them to do. Furthermore, even when they wanted to do A-B testing, we weren't going fast enough because there was such concern on even impacting like 5% of users that often those tests were so, so small. And as a result, over six months, we'd spent a whole typical team, you know, product manager, designer, engineers, 
Uh, and we had extremely marginal gains from that. And there was questions whether or not the team was being successful and whether or not we should wind them down. Solution? Change the goal was the first one. Counterintuitively, starting by taking off the table this big audacious goal that was making them super anxious about doing value for the business. It's quite counterintuitive when you think about driving to outcomes, but we instead replaced that goal with test velocity. We called it at-bats. The number of swings you have, the better. And then this notion of an idea mix portfolio, we wanted to see a mix of smaller ideas and bigger swings. The second thing we did is we really worked on the team's culture. So we talked about switching up the ideation process from this small ideas, lots of critique, lots of that's not going to work kind of behavior to let's just go for volume. Let's just try to get big ideas. Where can we go get those big ideas from? We emphasize learning as an outcome to be celebrated and we wrote down product principles around being hypothesis driven, that speed and iteration is of the essence and that failing is okay. What are the outcomes? Well, just by doing that, we built confidence and momentum within the team. We saw the, the velocity pick up very, very quickly, but even more subtly, the team felt comfortable in, a, in, a, in, a, in an environment. Not in a, in a comfort zone, they felt challenged, but they were in the learning zone. They were actually excited about the, the opportunity. They were no longer anxious. The throughput, both of ideas tested and the breadth of those ideas, uh, drove up a lot, and guess what? We hit our goal. Now I must say that it was impossible to change the organizational culture, but changing the team's environment was possible. All right, well let's end there on a high note. And yeah, we've got some great content coming up. I think we'll break down some more of these industry talks. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I'm having fun with it too. I think people will enjoy getting to hear from some of the people that we had as speakers at industry. And I know we're already working on our next series. I don't want to give away too much, but I was just recently at the New York Product Conference interviewing a lot of product folks, and I'm getting excited for that next series too. Yeah, something about um, doing really well in product, right? <laughs> maybe or maybe no. not. I guess we'll, <laughs> no. I, I guess we're going to have to see. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Should be probably early next year. We'll have that, but we'll still have new episodes every week, um, and we'll keep breaking down some of these amazing talks that came to us just from this last industry. All right, cool. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you can check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.